I'm Alejandro Soto. This is How on Earth, the KGN News Science Show. Today is Tuesday, April 10th, 2018. Coming up, we speak with Adam Frank about how the science of astrobiology can help guide our future on Earth. Frank will talk with us about the progress of astrobiology in the past few decades and how that progress can provide a new framework for assessing many challenges that humanity faces, including climate change. As part of the Conference of World Affairs, which is being held this week at the campus of the University of Colorado Boulder, we are speaking today with astrophysicist Adam Frank. Frank is a professor at the University of Rochester, where he studies the final stages of evolution for stars like the Sun. He is also the author of an upcoming book, Light of the Stars, Alien Worlds and the Fate of the Earth, which will be published in June of this year. Today we are speaking with Frank about ideas from this new book, including how the science of astrobiology can provide insights into how humanity can address planetary scale change challenges like climate change. Adam Frank, welcome to KGN News. How on Earth? It's great to be here. So, uh, your upcoming book is titled "Light of the Stars: Alien Worlds and the Fate of the Earth." It's an intriguing title. So, what do alien worlds have to do with the fate of the Earth? Well, um, essentially, over the last 30 or 40 years, we've been looking at what I like to call the astrobiological revolution, which is that uh, in a number of different ways, we have found all of these other worlds uh, in, in the universe, and we've also been exploring our own uh, solar system. We have robots you know, rolling around Mars and uh, other, other places, and then we've really been able to uncover our own Earth's history. And so it's time for us to start looking at what's happening to Earth now, our own project of civilization, in, you know, the its true astrobiological, astronomical context, because climate change is essentially a planetary transition. And we're, we're limited by the fact that we think it's a one-time story. But what you're thinking, though, is that it's not a one-time story, and that somehow we can see the story playing out in our observations of the universe? Well, it's, it's you know, whether we see it via observations or not, we now know enough to, um, first of all, assess the question of, of the likelihood of, you know, uh, of, of other civilizations, right? Which I know is a radical concept for people, but one of the papers that I did with a collaborator is we were able to use all of this data about exoplanets, right? So we now know that every star you see in the sky has a planet orbiting it. And if you count up five of them, one of them will have a world in the right place for life to form. Um, that doesn't mean the life has formed, but it's in what we call the habitable zone. Now, 20 years ago, we didn't know that. 20 years ago, 30 years ago, we didn't know whether there were any planets in the universe other than in our solar system. And this is a radical sea change in our understanding of the universe and the possibilities for life. And my colleague and I used that data to calculate, um, in some sense, what, is, what are the odds that we're alone? What are the odds that we're the only time in cosmic history that there's been a industrial civilization? And it turns out that those odds are one in 10 billion trillion. So as long as nature's evolutionary processes uh, you know, give us odds that are better than one in 10 billion trillion, we're not the first time it's happened. So another way of saying this is unless the universe is really biased against the processes that start with life and go all the way up to a civilization, Unless the universe is really biased against it, 
it's happened before, and it's possibly happened trillions of times. Doesn't mean there's anyone in, in the galaxy now. Universe, even with those numbers, universe could be sterile. Um, it doesn't mean that there's you know anyone around to talk to now. It just means that it is you know very likely that this has happened before. And that's the important point is that, you know, from even a theoretical point of view, I can, my understanding of planets is good enough now that I can theoretically think about the interaction between a civilization and a planet and begin sketching out possible trajectories for those. So let's dig into how do you actually do that? How do you, so this is an interesting idea and an argument. Okay. You've made this argument. Yes. Uh, In all likelihood, this has happened before, but from some of the same parts of that argument, you could probably argue in all likelihood i'm not going to get to see how it happened before at least not in our lifetimes so how do you still use this insight to help guide us forward right now that's a great question um and so what you want to think about is the higgs boson right the well, higgs that's boson. not what i expected you to say <laughs> right the higgs boson was predicted 40 years ago nobody's seen the higgs boson but you were able to use the laws of physics that you understood very well to first make the prediction that there should be the Higgs boson. And then there was 40 years of mapping out the the physics of how the Higgs boson interacted with all the other particles. We now understand climate so well um, from our studies on Earth, from our studies on Venus, from our studies on Mars, from Jupiter, from Titan, that we really understand how planetary systems and what we mean by planetary systems i mean things like you know the the ground the the the, the lithosphere as they would call it the atmosphere if there are liquids there the the the, um, the hydrosphere the cryosphere we understand how these things all interact so well that i can you know i can run models i can do the theory and include a technological civilization because a technological civilization is just basically a mechanism for harvesting energy from the planet and doing work with it you know, if I don't, I'm not going to ask about whether they have six fingers or, you know, you know, antenna on their forehead. That's not what I'm interested in. I'm interested in, in the, in the long-term interaction between a planet and a technological civilization. And there I, you know, I know enough to, you know, really start sketching out the, uh, the physics and the chemistry of what that interaction has to look like so much so that it's in many ways, it's generic. Uh, and we've already started doing this running models of, of, of climates, of planets with climates with industrial civilizations and looking at the feedback and seeing that there are some very generic patterns for the trajectories, the, the histories of a civilization as it, you know, uh, as it harvests more and more energy and feeds back on its planet. And so you can put these civilizations into the simulations, um, by making, um, simple, straightforward assumptions like, let's assume that they actually had the equivalent of hydrocarbons, right. and uh, which would be like gasoline or, or um, natural gas, and what if they started burning at what would happen? Or you could do a reverse and say, what if they had an, uh, an industrial civilization that, for whatever reason, whatever unique part of their planet, uh, they burned a lot of things. That's how they got their energy. Uh, and then you could run the simulations with that. And so is, this is the type of stuff you guys are actually doing. Yeah, we're starting down that road. So, you know, the interesting thing is for a young civilization like ours, there's only certain, there's only, you know, you can enumerate all the kinds of energy that basically the planet's going to give you. There's going to be stuff to burn. Now, whether or not there's fossil fuels or not, that's an open question. But there will be, you know, if, if there's life, there's stuff to burn, right? Um, there will be tides. There will be wind. There will be solar. You know, maybe nuclear, right? Um, uh, uh, geothermal. Did I mention geothermal? And that's pretty much it. And even each one of these, you can calculate what the planetary feedback would be for of using them large scale. For so, for example, you know, we all look to wind as being like, oh, you know, if we could just have a civilization based on wind, you know, it would be everything would be great. Um, 
there's no free lunch. You can't have a world-girdling civilization and not have some feedback. So there was a study a few years back that looked at is if you tried to power our civilization purely with wind, um, using all you know the maximum extraction of wind, and it turns out that you still get somewhere around two degrees, the equivalent of two degrees of warming. There's just, you know, this is a big thing that we built this project of civilization. And there's the second law of thermodynamics says there's going to be some feedback. So this is a good point then to connect the part of your title to the other part of your title, Alien Worlds to the Fate of the Earth. Because what you've done is um, by trying to study hypothetical, idealized alien worlds, and you looked at a scenario with a, a wind-only uh, civilization, you see the limits to it and the fact that there is a cost. So that means then that we can actually look at then our choices we're making right now. What I'm hearing from you is that even if we convert it to a wind-only society and try to move away from fossil fuels, that won't solve all the problems. We still need to be pushing energy efficiency at the same time. Well, it's, you know, the, the, what I would call the astrobiological perspective on the Anthropocene, right, which is this new geologic era that we've triggered through our activity, um, I think it switches a lot of things. And in particular, it changes our view of what we're doing, what we are on the planet, right? So, we, we, so here's an interesting question from the astrobiological perspective. We're all like, oh, we've got to develop a sustainable version of civilization. How do we know that's a thing? How do we know that's something the universe even does, right? You know, the universe has comets and black holes and, you know, and, and stars. How do we know the universe does long-term versions of this kind of civilization? And that's the kind of question you can ask with what we're doing. So um, there's a very, there's the, the, we could talk about the Drake equation. There's this very famous thing called the Drake equation. But the, the last term in the Drake equation is something called the average lifetime of a civilization. From what we're doing, we can calculate when we're done. We haven't gotten there yet. We'll be able to calculate the theoretical average lifetime of a civilization, at least for a young one. And if that number turns out to be 200 years, you know, that tells us something. That tells us, like, you know, it's really hard to thread the needle through the Anthropocene. If that, there's not many, you don't have much room for mistakes in your choices. If that number is 200,000 years, it means, you know, there's some slop in there. You can make a mistake and, you know, you'll probably be able to make it through. So this perspective changes our understanding of where we think we're going and what, uh, here's the other thing, one, what does it look like when we get there? So another paper we just did was asking, what are the properties of a planet with a, um, um, a long-term sustainable version of a, a, of a civilization. Because, again, the astrobiological perspective tells you that, you know, we think we're trying to, our goal is to save the Earth. But I think that completely misunderstands what planets are, right? Mm -hmm. the, the Earth is not a fragile little bunny nope. that we have to take care of. You know, our job is really not to piss the Earth off, right? Because by triggering the Anthropocene, we have, we're moving the Earth into a new uh, uh, state, um, and this has happened before. The Earth has been triggered, and life has triggered the Earth moving into new states. Our job is to make sure that we're still part of it, right? And so, you know, the Earth is, a, it, it is as I say, it, it is a uh, an agent for channeling cosmic scale powers. Uh, yeah, the, you know, planets are nature's way of taking sunlight and turning it into something interesting. And, uh, you know, we are what the biosphere is doing now. Doesn't mean that we're the biosphere is going to be doing, you know, a thousand years from now. So it's a, you know, it, it gives you a very different understanding of what planets are and what they do and what biospheres are. And I like emphasizing that point that it's about humanity's survival because the, one of the things we've been learning from uh, all the great stuff that's been done in planetary science and astrobiology over the last 20 or 30 years is not only have these planets consistently survived uh, being bombarded by giant objects, being bombarded by radiation, constant upheaval from internal changes in the planets, 
But as far as we can tell on Earth, which it looks like has been around for, uh, at least at the microbial level for 4 billion years, yeah. the microbial life does a good job of surviving all this yeah. stuff. Wiped out, uh, di- uh, asteroid wiped out the dinosaurs, microbes stuck around like, like nothing happened, right. right? So it's about us surviving. Uh, the microbes and all, a lot of the other life that's out there is probably going to do just fine even if we manage to, to bungle things up. The question is... And what you're talking about is trying to figure out what are our, our chances that we can make it through this. And, and in, so um, if you're just joining us, uh, you're, this is How on Earth on KGNU, and I'm Alejandro Soto. I'm speaking with astrophysicist Adam Frank about the science of astrobiology and the fate of humanity on Earth, uh, which is just where we left off, fate of humanity on Earth. And one of the things that has been a tool for decades uh, for trying to study this is something you just mentioned a moment ago, the, Frank, uh, the Drake equation. And um, why don't you explain a little bit about what it is uh, and how it's been used in the past so far. So the Drake equation came uh, from a meeting in 1961 with Frank Drake, Carl Sagan, and a number of others. Um, and uh, it was basically the early discussion and it was one of the first real systematic discussions of thinking about life elsewhere. And they, you know, Frank Drake was given the task of sort of organizing this meeting, and he came up with this equation that basically, what the equation it was really a way of thinking about the problem about life in the you know intelligent life in the universe. And the equation gave uh, the output of the equation was the number of civilizations that we could listen to or that we could get signals from. Another the, uh, the number of advanced civilizations in the galaxy, and then uh, you know the it had a bunch of terms you put into it the the um, uh, number of stars in the galaxy, the number of those stars that have planets, the number of planets around each one of those stars that has planets, the fraction of those planets that develop life, the fraction of that life that goes on to become intelligent, the fraction of those uh, that intelligence that goes on to build civilizations, and then finally this final factor, the lifetime. And it was a way of organizing our thinking about um, uh, extraterrestrial intelligence. And it was enormously, you know, it's a simple equation. It's not an equation like F equals MA or E equals MC squared. It's not a law of nature. It's a way of organizing the problem. <clears throat> Excuse me. And so that Drake equation became, it was just a fundamental tool. We have just, it gets used over and over again as a way of thinking about intelligence and other civilizations. Um, and what we, what we did in our papers, we used the Drake equation and we kind of flipped it around. We just did some simple manipulations and that's how we got that one in 10 billion trillion number for what we call the, the, um, uh, the pessimism line to show that, you know, it, overwhelmingly we're not, the odds are we're not the first time there's been a civilization. But to me, what's been most interesting is since that, since Frank Drake put that idea out there, organized it in that way, when they he started having these discussions and the community was talking about this, basically, I believe all if or almost all of the variables in that equation were basically unknown. Yeah, there was only one term that they knew, which was the light, the 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 stars one, the one about like how many stars there were in the galaxy, or you can express it as the the formation rate of stars. That was the only term they knew. But what's amazing since then is now we've begun to actually fill in the terms. What turned out to start out as a very thought experiment type of thing. We still have a long way to go. There's still terms on there that we have no handle on whatsoever. But there are other terms that we can completely define now. Yeah, they're nailed, basically. All the astronomy terms, all the terms in astronomy, the fraction of stars that have planets and the number of planets per in the habitable zone, as we call the number of planets in the right place um, for life to form, we know those. So because of missions like uh, Kepler, uh, ground-based missions, uh, Hubble and others that have been discovering planets around other stars. Now we have this uh, thousands and thousands of exoplanets that have been identified. And we've begun to identify, thanks to missions like uh, Kepler again, 
uh, where they are in their orbits to identify which ones are in our close. And that gets to a term you've used a couple times now, which is the habitable zone. Right. So what does it mean for a planet to be in a habitable zone? So the habitable zone was an idea that dates back, actually, to um, the Drake equation. It was uh, Sheng Sheng who uh, was the scientist who came up with it. It was basically the idea that it's the place where the, the band of orbits around your star, where if you dropped a planet down there, you could have liquid water on the surface. The belief being that liquid water on the surface, rolling on the surface, was essential to life. Now, obviously, that's kind of narrow because, you know, we could be more imaginative, but at least you got to start somewhere, right? And the interesting thing, so the habitable zone has been a guiding principle for astrobiology for a long time. But of course, the amazing thing now is we know so much more, even when it comes to water, because we know that in our own solar system, we've got all these moons with liquid oceans under ice, you know, um, and Cetalus and, and, you know, um, uh, Europa. So it's like, even that has changed. Now, you know, we, we think there are habitable places in the solar system that are not in this solar system's habitable zone. So it's pretty, it's just been amazing what's happened over the last 20 years. And so this hits on something interesting because while the astronomy side of science has been going off and discovering all these amazing exoplanets with different features, different sizes, uh, characteristics we didn't expect, on the same hand, on the other end, more of a geology and biology end, we've had a, a big push in understanding what you might call either astrobiology or geobiology mm -hmm. or or origin and evolution of life. What big changes have been and discoveries have been made in the past 10 or 20 years that are helping contribute to the ideas that you have? Well, for example, you know, so I deal a lot with climate denialists, you know, because of my work with uh, NPR and the New York Times and such. Um, and, you know, what people, oftentimes people are like, oh, you know, life couldn't, we couldn't have changed the atmosphere. That's crazy. And it's like one of the things we've discovered from looking at the Earth's history is the great oxidation event, that the life microbes completely changed the atmosphere of the planet. So every time you breathe, you are a testament to the fact that life can change the climate because it was the oxygen that um, these microbes were, were you know, burping out because of their the new photosynthesis they they came up with that allowed the the air to have oxygen. You know, for this is an interesting. If you were to land on Earth. Um, you know, three billion years ago. When there was life, there was life all over the place. And if you got out of your spaceship, the first thing that would happen to you was you die. And you'd asphyxiate because there was no oxygen in the atmosphere. And it was the life that made the oxygen, therefore transforming the entire planet. So there's a nice example of because we know Earth's history now with fairly high resolution going back four billion years, we can see, we see the key idea that Vladimir Verdansky came up with, a Russian geophysicist uh, 30, uh, you know, 70 years ago, which is the biosphere. That life is not just sort of some sort of green scruff hiding, you know, that just goes along for the ride. Life has hijacked the planet. It is a, you cannot talk about Earth's history and its evolution without including the evolution of the biosphere. And so that is, you know, there's a philosophical transition that comes when you include that in your thinking about uh, uh, um, other worlds and our own fate, which is that understanding that it's the evolution, the co-evolution of planets and biospheres, which is key. And that we, you know, an industrial civilization, we are the the experiment the biosphere is running now. If we go to Mars, it's not going to be human beings going to Mars. It's going to be Earth's biosphere going to Mars, reaching out. Um, and so, you know, bio, the biosphere has run lots of experiments over over time. We're just the most recent one, and you know, we may we could clearly not be part. Earth will be very happy to move on without us. Is sort of the the important point. So the only thing that might be different this time is that we're at least self aware enough 
to try to participate in this experiment, maybe guarantee our survival as right. experimental rats in this case. Yeah, you know, it's a completion of Gaia. So, you know, I'm sure many people are familiar with the Gaia hypothesis, which James Lovelock and uh, Lynn Margellis came up with. And they were, you know, the Gaia hypothesis was really the recognition of how important the biosphere was. Now, you know, the, the Gaia thing became very sort of new age and earthy crunchy. And, and this is why scientists really pushed back, because it seemed to have what we call teleology in it. The planet wanted something or other. And so, you know, scientists pushed back on Gaia, and then Gaia transformed into what we now call Earth system science, where we recognize that the biosphere is important, but we don't think of like, you know, that the, the, plant, that the Earth wants to go in some direction. It's still blind evolution. However, once you get an, a, a technological civilization, it's the completion of Gaia, because now there is teleos. Now there is direction, you know? So if you get, if your biosphere evolves a technological civilization, and it can make it through its Anthropocene, it's doing it in a, in a conscious way. And so now it, that's an awakened planet. So the theme here has been how um, the science of astrobiology can help provide some guidance to how we tackle things like climate change. So what do you see in the next, say, 5, 10, 15 years of the direction of astrobiology and exoplanet research? What do you see the, the potential new discoveries that are going to then help us get a better grasp of what, what's going on with us here on Earth. Um, the most fascinating and exciting thing that's happening in astrobiology right now is is atmospheric characterization. That, um, I mean, I don't think people really understand how profound this change is. So people have been arguing about whether or not there's life on other planets since, you know, the dawn of time. Or you can see the Greeks arguing about it 2,500 years ago. Um, and we're about to have data. You know, we've instead of just arguing for the, that entire time, that debate has just been like, I think this, and then somebody, I think that, and it's just an argument. But we're about to have data relevant. I don't know what the data is going to say, but because of the Kepler missions, and you know, uh, we've now discovered all these planets. We know how to stare at these planets as they pass in front of their stars, and we're able to get data about their atmospheres. And you, and because of the Gaia iPod, because of the people who worked on it, you know, James Lovelock, we know that we can use the atmosphere as a kind of life detector in some sense. Because if there's, for example, if there's oxygen and methane in the the atmosphere, and we'll be able to see that through our telescopes. Um, that most likely means that there's there's a biosphere there. So, you know, have those doing that is got you know just the the ability uh, to see the possibilities for life is just is game changing. Um, and then and since because also we're staring at all these planets, there's the possibility we may see techno signatures. You know, we're going to be looking for biosignatures, but we should also be ready for the possibility of techno signatures. So all of this contributes to this philosophical change in how we understand ourselves, I think. But that brings up an important sort of caveat and reminder towards skepticism. Uh, you're probably familiar, but just so the audience uh, knows, in the past few years, there's, there's been an object that's been observed. It's picked up the name Tabby Star, so right. which I'll use right now, which had a really weird light signature. And really weird. It was doing things that looked like periodicity, but wasn't periodicity. Uh, and that for, you know... Immediately looking at it, most of the scientists looked at it and went, I can't ascribe a known physical process right. to this. And so even many astrophysicists quickly started going, oh, my God, alien superstructures and all <laughs> sorts of stuff like this. And I think it was a legitimate discussion to have. But I also think what they ended up doing was the right thing to do, which is before anybody really drew any conclusions, at least within the scientific community, they said, all right, we need more data. Let's go get more data. And now it looks like we're heading back towards a a um, natural physics-based non-intelligent uh, life explanation for what was going on there. But I think it's a great example of the challenge that this next stage you're talking about is going to have to face, however, which is that classic term. It's often equi 
attributed to Sagan, but actually goes farther back than that, which is that um, in incredible claims require incredible uh, evidence uh, is one variation of it. So um, how do you think we're going to we can tackle this challenge going forward so that we can actually take on these great questions, but also not trick ourselves along the way. This is true for both biosignatures and technosignatures, right? There's a lot of discussion. You know, people point to like oxygen and methane, but we already know that there are some cases, you know, or like around M dwarf stars, you know, the small stars, where you can get conditions where you might be able to get naturally get oxygen and methane. So, you know, I always tell people like, look, we are really entering an era where we are going to be thinking very carefully and looking for evidence of life and perhaps even intelligent life in completely different ways. Um, but it's science, and science is slow, and sometimes it's painful and boring, you know? But that's part of the thing. If you really want to be able to make this claim, you got to beat this stuff down. So that's, people should be prepared for the long slog because that's how science works. But eventually, in that long, long slog, you get the possibility of answers. Like, you know, it was a long slog to find planets. That was a radical thing, and it took literally 150 years to be able to get the technology to get planets. So, you know, be patient is my my... Uh, cautionary term. So as we wrap up here in the last minute, do you have any sort of final thoughts for everybody? Um, I just, you know, my final thought is that, you know, we really have to change our understanding about climate change. The dialogue, the debate, the way we think about ourselves and climate change has got to shift because A, we're stuck in this ridiculous political back and forth, this tribalism, which has nothing to do with the science. And B, climate change is calling on us. You know, climate change is really about us ending our teenagehood, right? That, that basically we are cosmic teenagers. We've been given the keys to the planet um, with our technological civilization. And it's, it's, you know, the question is now, like every civilization that has gone through this, do we make it or not? Do we have the maturity to pass through uh, and make it? So that's the change that has to happen. Well, this is very exciting. Um, I look forward to when your book comes out in June. Uh, June 12th, yeah. Excellent. And it's titled uh, Light of the Stars, Alien Worlds, and the Fate of the Earth. Uh, thank you very much. Oh, was a great pleasure. Uh, that was astrophysicist Adam Frank discussing astrobiology and the Anthropocene and uh, the topic of his upcoming book, Light of the Stars, Alien Worlds, and the Fate of the Earth, which will be published on June 12th this year. That's all for this edition of How on Earth. Our executive producer is Joel Parker. This week's show was produced by me, Alejandro Soto, and engineered by Maeve Conran. Our theme music was written and produced by Josh Cutler. Visit our website at howonearth.org to find past episodes, extended interviews, and you can subscribe to our podcast through iTunes and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Questions or comments? Call the KGNU comment line at 303 447-9911. For How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show, I'm Alejandro Soto. <laughs>